I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now it's not insignificant that Peter began this epistle by designating himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Suffice it to say that I believe Peter has used the title apostle here because it carried with it a unique authority consistent with the authority vested in the prophetic tradition of ancient Israel. I'm also not going to spend much time discussing the various regions to whom Peter addressed this epistle originally. These locales cover just about all of Asia Minor, a geographical area that fills a large portion of modern-day Turkey, roughly the size of Texas in the United States. So Peter's not writing to a single community, or even a series of communities in close geographical proximity. This was a letter intended to be circulated widely, and therefore it's important to recognize that the issues it addresses will likely be more general. All that aside, the entirety of our conversation this morning will center on just six words in our English translations, three in the original Greek. The Greek is eklektois, parapedemois, diasporas, and it's translated in the NIV as to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout. Now, my translation of the Greek would sound something like this, to the elect ones who are residing temporarily in diaspora, that is, in exile, in the regions of, and then it lists out the reasons. What may not be clear, or at least not that clear in our English translations, but what seems abundantly clear in the Greek, is that Peter was using language that first century Jewish writers often used of Jews living outside of the land of Canaan, outside of the Holy Land, sometimes called Palestine, um, though I don't love that language. That is, Jews who were dispersed amongst the nations. The technical Jewish term for living amongst the nations was the term diaspora, and it was a loaded term for Jewish people in the first century. And so our first point this morning is this, the origin of diaspora or exile. The language of diaspora or exile would have conjured up a quite painful and shameful history of which Jewish people living in the first century would have been reminded regularly each time they paid taxes to Caesar or were forced to defer to Roman leadership on matters of religious observance. As we recall, Israel was at one time an independent nation, ruling a territory given to them by God. But that was no longer the case in the first century. The Israelite people, then known as Jews, were subjects of the Roman Empire. And that was true both of those Jews living outside of the Holy Land and of those living within the confines of the so-called um, Promised Land. What happened? Well, we can find the explanations for the falls of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel in the First Testament book of Second Kings, chapter 17 and 21, respectively. But in the end, God sent the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel into diaspora or exile as fulfillment of a promise that he had made when he originally covenanted with them at Mount Sinai after having delivered them from slavery in Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 58 to 67, we find the following promise. If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, which are written in this book, and do not revere this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. The Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters. 
and severe and lingering illnesses. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are destroyed. You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You'll be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter, in the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, it's the word diaspora, which is exile. Then the Lord will scatter you among all the nations, from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, if only it were evening, and in the evening, if only it were morning because of the terror that, that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see. And as violent and vicious as it was, diaspora, or exile, was a fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Now it is true that some years later, under the rule of a Persian king named Cyrus, some of the exiles from the southern kingdom of Judah were allowed to return home. However, the ten northern tribes of Israel never returned en masse. And apart from a short time of self-rule under the Maccabees, even Judah had always lived under the rule of foreigners. In the days of Jesus and of the apostles, Israel remained, for all intents and purposes, in diaspora, in exile. And that's the origin of the language of diaspora, or exile. And it is that language that Peter used to describe the Christians to whom he was writing, to the elect ones who are residing temporarily in diaspora, in the regions of and on and on. And more interesting still, the text of 1 Peter seems to make clear that these Christians to whom Peter was writing were primarily Gentile. They were primarily non-Jewish. Why did Peter choose this language of diaspora or exile to describe primarily Gentile Christians in the regions of Asia Minor? Our first point was the origin of diaspora. Our second point is this, a kingdom in diaspora. Let's read that phrase from 1 Peter again. To the elect ones who are residing temporarily in diaspora, in the regions of. And now let's bring it together with Jesus' final exhortation to his apostles in the gospel according to Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Formerly, I had read Jesus' so-called Great Commission in these verses as a command to Christianize the nations of the earth. And history indicates that I've not been alone in that assumption. However, when the Great Commission of Jesus began to bear fruit, and Gentiles actually began to respond to the gospel, Peter did not use kingdom or establishment language to describe them. Instead, Peter used the language of diaspora, the language of exile. 
Might I suggest in light of Peter's language that perhaps God has always intended the kingdom of heaven on this side of eternity to be a kingdom in diaspora, a kingdom in exile? Might I observe that Peter's language of exile could suggest that God's intention is that his disciples go and make disciples in every nation on earth, with the expectation that those disciples will remain as temporary exiles in foreign territory until the time that Jesus returns and leads us in a new exodus out of this world and into the new heavens and the new earth. Perhaps any attempt to build a kingdom of God on earth will always be doomed to fail, because this earth is not the promised land. Now, if I'm correct in my reading of Peter, and it might also follow that no vision is more distracting to God's mission on this present earth than the attempt to build a Christian utopia on this earth. What if these attempts have always failed? Because utopia on this earth is not God's intention for his kingdom. What if trying to build perfect societies on earth is akin to the Israelites trying to build their nation in Egypt? What if God intends his disciples to be temporary exiles among the nations of the world? And he intends that until Jesus returns to lead us in a new exodus out of this fallen place and into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. Our first point this morning was the origin of diaspora. And the second was a kingdom in diaspora. The third and final point is this, the ethics of diaspora. If God has decided to leave the citizens of his kingdom in exile amongst the nations until Jesus' return, then how should we live in this exile? If we're not to expect to bring the kingdom of God on earth, then are we simply to throw up our hands in defeat, retreat into our homes and churches, and let the world fall apart until Jesus returns and delivers us out of this place? The ancient Israelites apparently had similar concerns when they were sent into diaspora. And God sent the prophet Jeremiah to explain to them what he expected of them in the time between their exile and his return. We can find those instructions in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. These instructions of Jeremiah to the exiles of Israel resonate powerfully with the initial verses of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5-7. through 7. 
In that context, Jesus seems to have assumed that his followers will be surrounded by hostility. Hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in the heavens. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in the heavens. We are not called to establish a kingdom of God on earth. Rather, God has called us to gather a harvest out of the kingdoms of the earth to come with us into the kingdom of God. The full and complete ethics of Jesus' kingdom will not work here, not nationally, not politically, not structurally or institutionally. We live in hostile territory. We are sheep amongst wolves. We are salt scattered throughout the nations. We are light in the darkness. We will never redeem the nations of this earth, but we can live redeemed within them. And if we can help them to live in some way reflective of the light of God, then we may help them to prosper somewhat in this time between the times. But the great temptation, even of Christians, is at least twofold. One, either we treat this world as our permanent habitation by attempting to put down permanent roots here, or two, we retreat from this world out of fear by establishing safe little communities of like-minded people and excluding those who do not share our beliefs or scruples. It is appropriate for Christians to gather together regularly, to encourage one another, and to worship together, and to support one another, and to disciple one another. I read the New Testament as actually commanding this of Christians, of expecting it of us who follow Jesus. But our primary call is to live in the diaspora, to live as exiles. And that means that we must live intentionally in the midst of hostility. To the elect ones who are residing temporarily in diaspora, in the regions of America and Africa and South America and Europe and Asia and Australia and in the Pacific Rim and I'm suggesting that the attempt to establish the king of God on earth, whether we're talking about a socio-political entity or even a religious one, is akin to building structures of snow when spring is coming. We are not to retreat. We are to live as light in the darkness, embodying the ethics and values of a kingdom not of this world. But we do so as resident aliens, temporarily living in diaspora, in exile, 
amongst the nations of the of the of the world. How should we live? I know of no better summary than the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd encourage you to read Matthew chapters 5 to 7 with your children. But we live out these kingdom ethics in exile. And this will be the reality of the church, I believe, until Jesus returns as he promised. We must embrace exile on this earth. But what does that look like? Well, in the words of Jeremiah, again, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven for its God's throne, or by the earth for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in the heavens. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore. Be complete, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are not governmental or earthly kingdom ethics. They are the ethics of those living in diaspora, in exile, from a kingdom that is coming and is not here. And I believe this assumption of residing temporarily in diaspora, in exile, undergirds all of what Peter intended to contend in 1 Peter. And so he began by writing to the elect ones who are residing temporarily in diaspora, that is in exile, in the regions of. If we can embrace this church, if we can embrace that we are exiles, that we are citizens of another place, living temporarily in this living out the ethics of a kingdom that is not here, but anticipating a kingdom and a king who is coming. Then we may learn how to live in balance with a world that is wicked, that is insistent on not following God in all things. We have always been exiles. Whether our culture borrows from the wisdom of God or does not, whether our culture submits 
to the will of God or does not. For us, we are called to live as salt and light wherever we are. But we can anticipate his coming. We can live out his ethics. We can preach his gospel. And we can live as citizens of the kingdom that is coming.